In just a moment, I'll be reading Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, yet again, as we continue to work our way slowly through the prologue of this epic New Testament epistle, better named, better called a sermon, um, because it really is a sermonic letter expounding and celebrating the life and legacy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Speaking of celebrating life and legacy of someone, um, this last Friday night, this past Friday night, my family and I had the opportunity, because of a very generous gift, um, to, be able to, to be able to witness Hamilton at the Forest Theater. Um, it was everything we had heard it would be and more. It was an amazing theatrical and musical experience. Um, many people were wishing they could get to it when it was only being shown at Broadway, but now they're making their tour across the U.S., and this is actually the last weekend um, that it will be in Philadelphia. And, and that amazing um, drama, that amazing musical celebrates the life and the legacy, the, the trials and the triumphs of one Alexander Hamilton, um, one of the, the less heralded founding fathers of our nation. And it took about three hours. It was a long program, um, three hours to expound that through music and through drama. It was a delight to the eyes and the ears. But it was also a challenge to the mind as you take into account um, the impact that one person has had on so many. And as I left that uh, moment, enjoying that moment for what it was, I thought about us. I thought about us gathering again today. And as the Church of Jesus Christ meets Sunday after Sunday, hour after hour, for 2,000 plus years we've been doing this to do what? To expound and to celebrate the life and legacy of one who has impacted billions, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it will take the church now and forever to plumb the depths of the greatness of our Savior, and so we direct our attention now to the text that helps us to do that a little bit more as we've gathered to honor Jesus today. So Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, let us hear the Word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is the word of God. May he add his blessing to its reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, verses one through four form just one 72-word sentence in the original language. And this one 72-word sentence exists for one purpose and one purpose only, to expound and celebrate the reality that there's no one like Jesus. There's no one like 
Jesus. And what the Father has revealed through Jesus must be taken into account and carefully processed by all who hear. How do we know that the intent is that we carefully process all that's said about Jesus in these four verses? Well, this opening prologue concludes in the opening of chapter 2, verse 1, which reads, we must pay close attention to what we have heard. There's no one like Jesus, so we better pay attention to Jesus. And so what we have here in the prologue is really the big idea, a continuation of the big idea of the entire book, sermon called Hebrews, and it's this, pay attention to Jesus because there is no one like him. What have we considered about the surpassing greatness of Jesus thus far? We've been going, a, doing a slow scroll, if you will, through these four verses, and then we'll pick it up as we move beyond chapter one. But here's what we've looked at already by way of review, that Jesus is the revelator of everything God wants to say to us. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. That Jesus is the possessor of everything. He's the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him by virtue of the triumphs of his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is also the creator of everything, through whom also he created the world. The triune God was intimately and intricately involved with the creation of the universe. And the accent of Scripture is the Father has created the universe through the means of his Son, And then the life-giving spirit animates and brings to life all that the Son speaks into existence. And then we also considered last week that Jesus is everything God is. Jesus is the God-man. What's true of the Father is true of the Son concerning his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God, verse 3 says, and the exact imprint of his nature. Oh, there's no one like Jesus, the revelator the possessor, the creator, the one true God. Let us now consider another aspect of the surpassing greatness of Jesus, that Jesus is the sustainer of everything. Look at verse three again. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word uphold has two nuances to its meaning. First, it means to sustain. In other words, the universe is neither self-existent, Jesus created it, and the universe, nor is the universe self-dependent. It is sustained by Jesus. Jesus not only created everything, according to the author of Hebrews, Jesus keeps everything going. Jesus sustains the entire created universe. Therefore, all of creation, the entire universe, is dependent upon Christ. And so Jesus isn't like the God of the deists who would 
propose that God created everything and then stepped back and is watching everything unfold as a disengaged creator. An illustration that's used to describe the the theology of the deists would be that of a clockmaker, that that God made a clock, he wound up the clock, and then he backed up, and now it's just going, and he's sitting in his proverbial rocking chair in the sky watching everything happen, and in particular watching everything go to pot. We don't believe in the tenets of deism. Jesus is intimately involved in what he's created. He made it all, and he sustains it all. He's a hands-on God. Uh, Mind the triteness, but he is a blue-collar God. He gets his hands dirty. He's intimately involved in what he's created, keeping it going, making sure it is sustained. Uh, We recently gave birth to we. Our giant schnauzers recently gave birth to a litter of puppies. I wanted to be very careful what I was intimating there. Um, And so it's just been amazing over the last five weeks watching these little puppies grow. If you need some therapy, if you need to just come over and, and hold a puppy for a little bit. We had our small group on Thursday night. We were all bearing burdens with one another. And actually, we were sitting around the table after our meal holding puppies and bearing burdens. And we were kind of like jokingly saying, you know, Jesus is Lord and we have puppies. You know, it was a, it was a great night. But what, one thing is, is, was for sure, from the moment these puppies were born, even to this moment right now, as we are here and there at our home on 41st Street, these puppies cannot exist on their own. They can't feed themselves. They can't sustain themselves. They can't nourish themselves. If we were to leave them alone, they would perish. The same is true about the created universe. Jesus brought the created universe into existence, and it absolutely, completely depends upon him for everything. Jesus is sustaining the universe. There's a second nuance to the word uphold here, and it's not just the idea of sustaining, it's the idea of carrying. To uphold something is to carry something, but not just to to hold the weight of a thing, but to carry it along to where it ought to go, to, to carry it along to its intended end. It implies guiding, directing, orchestrating, One scholar put it this way, what is being ascribed to the Son is the providential government of the universe, which is the function of God himself. And so Jesus is not only sustaining the universe, keeping it in existence, keeping it together, Jesus is also directing the universe, orchestrating the universe, carrying it along to its God-intended end. Do you remember what was said of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9 concerning the prophecy of the Messiah? And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And so in one sense, Jesus carries the weight of the world on his shoulders, directing it to its God-appointed end. That's Jesus. And again, when you think of Jesus carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders, don't think of the Greek god Atlas, who is standing there holding the world on his shoulders still. No, Jesus is taking the world where it ought to go. And so Jesus is actively involved, 
intimately involved in both the sustaining and the directing of the universe. And look at how he does this. He does this by means of his powerful word. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This directs our attention to the means by which Jesus sustains and guides the universe. He simply speaks and it's done. Again, we talked about how Hebrews gives us 30 plus direct quotations from the Old Testament as well as 50 plus allusions to the Old Testament. Again, part of the purpose of Hebrews, if you're just joining with us, is to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament anticipated concerning the Messiah, the perfect prophet, priest, and king who would come to rescue and renew God's broken world. And so here we have an allusion. We have an allusion by the word of his power. This takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. How Jesus is speaking the world into existence. And God said, let there be light. And it was so. When Jesus speaks, it happens. Why? Because his words are powerful. His words are packed up with backed up with omnipotence. His words are backed up with governing authority. His, his words are backed up with divinity. When Jesus speaks, it happens. And so we have this picture of Jesus who created the universe, who's keeping it into existence, who's guiding it and directing it toward its God-appointed end, and all he has to do is speak the word, and it's, in, it's done. Isn't Jesus amazing? And so, remember, we're supposed to pay close attention to this. We're supposed to bend our ear towards this aspect of who Jesus is and say, okay, Jesus is the sustainer of the universe, holding it all together, directing it by the word of his power. So what? What's the implication for you, for, for me? Well, consider this. If Jesus is sustaining and directing the entire universe, you, my friend, are a part of that universe. Which means that Jesus is sustaining and orchestrating your life. If Jesus is sustaining and directing the course of the universe, this means that every single day, Jesus is sustaining and orchestrating my life, your life. You know what that should do to your heart? It should bring you great relief. Your destiny and your existence is not dependent upon you holding it together. Your destiny and your existence is dependent upon the creator of the universe holding you together and taking your life to its God-appointed ending. Isn't that relieving? You are not the captain of your destiny. Jesus is. And guess what? That's good news. That's good news. So, so what? think through this. Take some time to think about this deeply and intimately. Have some conversations with your friends about how amazing this is. But just let me give you some more food for thought. If Jesus is 
sustaining and directing your life, then I think one of the most important applications of that is I need to trust Jesus to take care of me. Trust. We all have trust issues. We have trust issues because we've had people fail us. We've had seemingly healthy, life-giving relationships go south. We've had people in churches, in family, at school, in Christian fellowship networks. We've had people who said they would be there for us. We had people who said they would be something for us, and then they weren't, and then they didn't. Or am I the only one? And then we also have contributed to it because we've also not been there when we said we'd be there. And we haven't done what we said we would do, right? Don't project that on Jesus. Don't project the failures of others to be there and to do it and to come through on Jesus because Jesus never fails. You can trust him to hold your life together. You can trust him to hold your life together. Church, did you hear that? You can trust him to hold your life together. He's never made a single mistake in sustaining the created universe, and he will not make the first mistake in your life. He is a reliable sustainer. So where do you feel like life is falling apart right now? Where, where, where do you feel like things are kind of chaotic and, and not holding together? Don't add insult to injury by trying to make it better yourself. Trust Jesus to hold it together. Let me take it a step further because we love each other. We're brothers and we're sisters. We're family. If you're a guest here, we really believe we're family. We want to be there for each other. We want to help each other. And it's hard sometimes. We, we struggle. We fail. But let us realize this, that the people that we care for and the people that we want to help that ultimately their greatest help is not you. Their greatest help is Jesus. And so as you seek to depend on Jesus yourself, the greatest thing you can do for a brother or a sister who's struggling with holding their life together is not saying, hey, I'll hold it together for you. No, it's to direct them to the one who can hold it together for them. You will fail them. I will fail you. But Jesus never will. And so one of the greatest ways we serve one another is by directing each other's attention to the sustainer of the universe, Jesus. How do we know that we are, that we are actively sustaining, being sustained by Jesus or trusting Jesus to sustain us? How do we know if we're actively directing others to depend on Jesus and not on us? It's very simple, and it's going to sound almost too simplistic, but here's how we know if we're doing it. We pray. How do you know if you're taking your own issues into your own hands too much? How do you know if you're, if you're taking others' issues into your hands too much? Absence of prayer. Prayer is the breath of dependence. Prayer, and despite all the, the contours and, and, and details of the particulars, prayer is ultimately saying, Jesus, I can't, but you can. Is it not? So one of the ways we know we're depending on Christ, one of the ways we know we're, we're directing others to depend on Christ is as we pray for ourselves and as we pray for one another and as we pray with one another. Don't, don't make the mistake 
you can't and you don't have to try to hold your life and others together. Jesus has got that covered. Let's depend on him. Amen? There's no one like Jesus, the sustainer of everything. One more for today. Jesus is not only the sustainer of everything, also notice in the next phrase that Jesus did everything necessary to rescue sinners. Verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Stop there. Jesus did everything that was necessary to rescue sinners because Jesus did everything that was necessary to make purification for our sins. Why was it necessary, you might ask, for Jesus to make purification for sins? And what does that phrase even mean anyway? The word purification, it's, it's what you think it means. It means to make something clean. So why did we need Jesus to make purification for sins? Because apart from this purification, we are completely and totally morally dirty before God. As our brother Jim shared from the ministry mic last Sunday morning, reflecting on the portrait of our depravity in Isaiah's prophecy from head to toe, We are sinners through and through. Now, if you came here to get encouragement, you say, that's not real encouragement. Well, it gets better. There's none righteous, no, not one. From the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, we think, we operate, we speak, we act according to our nature. We are sinners. And because of our sin, The scriptures are clear. Before God, we are filthy. And there are a number of implications because of this. First of all, our sin keeps us from the presence of God because he is pure. God will not allow moral filth in his holy presence. So sin keeps us relationally distant from God. Sin keeps us from being where we were made to be in close proximity to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. We were created to enjoy community with the Trinity, but our sin expels us from that place where we're meant to find our truest joy and our truest purpose. Our sin not only keeps us from the presence of God because he's pure, our sin also keeps us under the judgment of God because he's just. God will not allow the moral filth of our sin into his holy presence, and God will not allow the defilement of our sin to go unpunished by his holy wrath. These are two themes that are repeated and addressed by the author of Hebrews over and over and over again. Here's the point. He brings these themes up over and over and over again to put an explanation explanation point behind the reality of why we needed Jesus to make purification for sin. 
So why was it necessary for Jesus to make purification for sin? Because without this work of purification, not a single sinner could ever enter the holy presence of God. Without this work of purification, every single sinner would face God's wrath and judgment for their sin. And so the author is saying, can we get a shout out for Jesus? There's no one like him because he has done the only thing that is necessary and the only thing that makes it possible for dirty sinners to be clean so they can be with they were meant to be and to escape the judgment of God that they deserve. So why was it necessary for Jesus to make a purification for sins? And why is this such good news that it's included in a line in this epic prologue? Because, here's the reason, there's no other way to escape God's wrath and there's no other way to have access to God's presence aside from the work Jesus did to make purification for sins. So now the prologue, obviously it's just the prologue, doesn't explain what Jesus did to make purification for sins, but it is emphatic that whatever he did, he finished that work. Because verse 4 says, after making purification for sins, he sat down. Who doesn't love to sit down after a day at work or classes, huh? After Jesus did whatever had to be done to make purification for sins, he sat down because he finished that work. So what was the work he finished? How did Jesus make purification for sins? Again, this is a topic that the book of Hebrews picks up in great detail, especially as we enter into chapters 8 and 9 and 10, as we see Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, as we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the priesthood, as we see Jesus offering for all time a single sacrifice for sin. But just for for the sake of making sure we get why this epic line belongs in the prologue, let me just direct your attention to one of the many texts in Hebrews that indicates what Jesus Jesus did to make purification for sins. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. And I think this text in particular makes it clear why Jesus sat down after he finished this work. Verse 11, Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, look, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One of my prayers this morning is that you would see yourself in that word, those. We are those for whom Christ finished this work. Oh, here in these glorious verses that we will take a deep dive into when we get to chapter 10, sometime in about four years. Um, Here we discover several realities about Jesus' death on the cross. First, Jesus' death on the cross was sacrificial. Verse 12 says that Jesus' death was a sacrifice for sins. 
So Jesus made purification for sins, chapter 1, verse 4, by being a sacrifice for sins, Hebrews 10, verse 12. The whole idea behind the Old Testament sacrificial system is that something innocent would die in the place of someone who was guilty. When the priest slit the throat of an innocent lamb, it faces death on account of another's guilt. The animal serves as a substitute for the sinner. Instead of the sinner dying, the animal dies instead. This sounds horrible and definitely not PETA approved. But in reality, this is a great expression of mercy. God in his mercy is willing to accept the death of another in the place of a guilty sinner. All of this was setting the stage for Christ. So when verse 12 says that Jesus was a sacrifice for sin, it indicates that when Jesus was on the cross, he was substituting himself in the place of sinners. He was taking the sin of sinners upon himself as a substitute. He was taking the guilt of sinners upon himself as a substitute. He was bearing the wrath of God in the place of sinners as a substitute. So when Jesus made purification for sins, he did this by becoming a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of sinners. So that instead of sinners dying, instead of sinners being judged, Jesus would die and be judged. Well, if you want to take a a deep dive into the contours of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, I, I commend to your reading The Cross of Christ by John Stott. And in his classic book, he makes the following comments about the nature of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. He said, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. My brothers and sisters, this is how Christ made purification for our sins. He died in our place. His death was sacrificial. One more observation from this Hebrews 10 text that indicates how Christ made a purification for our sins. His death on the cross was not only substitutionary. Again, this is very clear in the text. Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient. According to verse 11, the Old Testament sacrifices were offered repeatedly, day by day, but they never took away sin. Every day the priests are standing on their feet, offering sacrifice after sacrifice. And the the constant sacrifices were a constant reminder that sinners are in constant need of God's mercy and forgiveness. Contrast that with verse 12. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down. In verse 11, the priests are standing, while in verse 12, Jesus is sitting. Why? Not because Jesus is lazy. Not because the priests are doing what Jesus doesn't have to do. Jesus is sitting, or in verse 11, the priests are standing up because they still have work to do. In verse 12, Jesus is sitting because his work is done. He did what he was sent to do. And that is why in verse 4 of the prologue, the author says, after making purification for sins, he sat down. That gesture of sitting down, when you, when you, when you read of that gesture of sitting down, hear Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. It's done. I've made purification for sins. So the work that Jesus was sent to do to make purification for sins is finished. For by a single substitutionary sacrifice for sin, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Meaning this, all those who put their hope and trust in Christ's sufficient sacrifice are sufficiently saved to the very end. So what's What's God saying to us in this line? After making purification for sins, he sat down. Well, there's so much to say here. The whole New Testament is almost a, a, a question that says, so what to the fact that Christ did the work he was sent to do? And we could spend a lot of time trying to understand the, the, the extent to which these words, making after making a purification for sin, he sat down, apply to our lives and should have a significant impact on our lives. But I think as we consider this part of the prologue, I think the most important thing for us to consider this morning is this. You can be clean. Like me, your sin makes you morally filthy. Like me, you need spiritual cleansing, and there's nothing you can do to make yourself clean. Your attempts to make yourself clean only make you more dirty. You have the problem right. Something must be done about your sin, but you have the solution wrong. You can't make it better. You can't make your guilty conscience better on your own. You cannot get out from the cloud of your shame on your own. But I have good news. There is someone who can. His name is Jesus. Sometimes we get the problem right, but the solution wrong. Um, I'm born and raised here in Philly. And so... Um, Part of my life story is I grew up in North Philly. My grandparents, my aunts and uncles, we all kind of lived in the same section of neighborhoods in that part of the city. 
and something really like crazy happened my eighth grade year. My grandpa, who met my grandmom while he was stationed in Philly in the Navy during World War II, decided to pick up, retire, sell their house, and move back to the Midwest into the cornfields of Northwest Missouri. This was a shocker. How was my city slicker grandma? This is like that old show, Green Acres. You remember that? You know, watch the. Okay, never mind. Everybody over 30 goes, yeah, I know that. Um, okay. And so my grandpa takes my grandma, and they buy this old farmhouse in northwest Missouri, and I was in eighth grade, and that first summer, my grandparents had me and four of my brothers go out there and spend the whole summer in a foreign land. Doing things and experiencing things that I had never done or experienced before, some good, some bad, like cow tipping, don't ever do that. I'll tell you about that later. But I got there, I had these two cousins. Their names were Aaron and Brian, but we called them Rambo 1 and Rambo 2. Here's the reason why we called them that. They liked to shoot things. In fact, they actually liked to shoot things at each other. And so they introduced us, these weren't legal at the time, to, to bottle rockets. And bottle rocket guns made out of fishing poles. And you could actually shoot bottle rockets at each other. Isn't that amazing? No, it's not. Shooting fireworks at each other, ready? Bad idea. So here we are, me and my brothers, my cousins, we're shooting bottle rockets at each other. And I don't think we ever thought, what happens if one actually hits you and burns a hole through your body? And so I wind up with my bottle rocket gun, I light that baby up, and I shoot a rocket right at my brother Justin's abdomen. Why is that funny, Payson? <laughs> this is a horrible story. This is an illustration of what not to do. So this rocket, bottle rocket, hits him right in the gut, burns right through his shirt, takes his shirt off. He's like, oh, I'm like, I just killed my brother! You know, it was like that kind of moment. And then it begins to hit me. Okay, first he's alive, that's good, but there's this big red burn on his abdomen. And here's my first thought. This is bad. This is like preservation of self. It's like, if my grandpa sees this, I'm dead. I better fix this problem. So I, I, I brushed my brother Justin into the house, took him to my grandma's room. I was like, yeah, I get some lotion. And you probably need some lotion. So I took my grandma's oil of Olay and I applied it to this seeping burn because ointment makes burns better, right? No, not that ointment. I knew we had a big problem. I knew I needed to find the solution, but my friends, that was not the right solution. It made a bad thing, bad English, badder. <laughs> it made a bad thing worse. And it got worse than that because I gave repeated applications of the oil of Olay over the next couple of days upon my brother's burn, hoping it would make it better, but it got infected. And now my brother doesn't have a belly, just kidding. Um, <laughs> it made it worse. It made it worse. Sometimes, when we come to grips with a problem, we've got the problem right, but we've got the solution wrong. Very often, when we know something's wrong, we do the wrong thing to make it better, and it only makes it worse. When we become aware, when you become aware of, your, of the moral filth of your sin and the shame and the guilt that's associated with it, what you do next is very important. You can make it worse, 
or you can do the one thing that will make it better. And there are a couple things that we do, we often do when we come face to face with our, our moral corruption and, and, we, and we attempt to, to, to self-heal. The first thing we do is we try to deny it. I call this self-suppression. This is where we try to escape the bad feelings about feeling bad about our guilt. If I can just stop feeling guilty, then we think we are no longer guilty. If I can just convince myself that I'm not really dirty, then I'll be better. And so we try to forget about our guilt by self-medicating attempts of getting out from underneath it. So we try to escape alcohol, drugs, religious activity. And sadly, when we do this, we end up sinning more and adding more guilt. And a very popular thing that we do now is when we feel guilty about a sin, this is sad, and this is especially happening in the, in, in the evangelical world in terms of sexuality, is that when we don't like how we feel because of our, our inclinations towards not doing things the way God prescribes for us to do them, we actually try to find ways to make the Bible say things that doesn't really say. self Suppression, denial, that never works, does it? Second, we try to make up for it. I call this self-atonement. Well, I don't just call this self-atonement. Many people call it self-atonement. We try to make up for our guilt. If, if, if somehow we can do enough good things to make up for our bad things, then maybe that, that feeling of guilt and shame will just disappear. But here's an interesting thing that happens when we try to self-atone. We, we become, we add another layer of guilt because we never feel like we do enough to make up for our wrong. Am I right or am I wrong? And then we become a, a slave to good works as we try to make up for our failures and make up for our guilt. These don't work. Self-suppression doesn't work. Self-atonement doesn't work. But there is a third way. Don't deny it. Don't try to make up for it. Come to Christ to cleanse it. God is willing to extend mercy and forgiveness and cleansing through the substitutionary sufficient death of Jesus Christ. He will cleanse your guilty conscience. He will cover your shame. He will remove your guilt. He will forgive your sins. I know this for two reasons. The first reason is the most important and it's objective. The word of God says it. And second, I've experienced it. I stand before you as a forgiven man. a man whose conscience should be gnawing at him for all the ways I have failed. But I stand before you today with a clear conscience, not because I have it all together, but because Jesus made purification for sins and sat down. And he will do the same for you. Come to him with your guilty conscience. Come to him with your shame. Come to him with your failures. Come to him with your regrets. And you will find at the foot of the cross 
covering for your shame, deliverance for your guilt, forgiveness for your sin. There's no one like Jesus, the sustainer and savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for what you are telling us through your Son. Thank you that in these last days you've spoken by him and it couldn't be more clear. Your Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, thank you for holding our lives together. Jesus, thank you for directing our lives to their God-appointed end. And right now, the script doesn't flip. Things are going according to your plan. We trust you. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to be the Savior of sinners, to make purification for our sins. Jesus, thank you for doing everything that needed to be done so that our guilty consciences, so that our guilt, so that our shame could be removed, so that we could be truly and forever forgiven. We thank you, Jesus, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This morning we celebrate. We celebrate the triumphs of your cross. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for your once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf. Will we stop trying to get out from underneath the guilt of our sin any other way but coming to you? Oh, Holy Father, would you send your spirit now and help us as we pray and reflect to appropriately respond to the surpassing greatness of your Son, our sustainer and Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.